This is Grace Wan. Coming up on tonight's State of the Bay, John King, the San Francisco Chronicle's urban design critic and two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, joins me to discuss his new book, Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities. We'll learn about the rise, fall, and rebirth of this iconic building and find out what future challenges may exist for one of San Francisco's most famous landmarks. We'll also hear about a day in the life of Marin's search and rescue team, a group of highly trained volunteers who execute lost and missing person searches, high-altitude mountain rescues, and more. That's all coming up after the break. But first, this news. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. This hour, we'll be hearing from the Marin County Sheriff's Office Search and Rescue Unit. It's a volunteer organization focused on finding missing or lost people in the wilderness and urban settings of the North Bay and across the state. It's definitely not a job for the weak of heart. But first... Imagine this. It's a Saturday. You're perusing the stunning array of lettuces and tomatoes at the farmer's market. The smell of porchetta and roasted chicken from a food truck waft in the air. And then you head inside and roam the stalls. Cheeses, mushrooms, next-level coffee, all at your fingertips, while the clack, clack, clack of a Solari board reports on comings and goings. Where are you? You're at the ferry building, of course. And it wasn't always this way for this iconic building, which once saw 50 million passengers at one point. It wasn't always a farmer's market. And the full story can be found in John King's new book, Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities. King is the San Francisco Chronicle's urban design critic, a two-time Pulitzer Pulitzer Prize finalist, and a State of the Bay favorite. Welcome back to State of the Bay, John. Grace, what a wonderful introduction. Thank you. We are so happy you're here. And State of the Bay listeners, this is your chance to talk to John King. And we're going to open up the phone lines a little bit early to hear from you. Tell us, what does the ferry building mean to you, to the city of San Francisco? What other Bay Area buildings do you feel have iconic status? Give us a call. We're at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or send us a message and email us at stateofthebay at KALW. Well, John, I read this book. I really enjoyed it. And I'm curious about the first time you ever laid your eyes on the ferry building. What did you think when you saw it? Honestly, Grace, I don't remember. I grew up (laughs) in the Bay Area in Walnut Creek. Mm -hmm. And my I would sit in the back car and my parents would drive over to San Francisco. This is in the 60s, early 70s. And my first memory connected to this is more coming over on the Bay Bridge and noticing the growing skyline. This must have shown I was headed to be an architecture Mm. critic someday because I remember in single digits looking at what was the Alcoa building, now one Maritime Plaza, this kind of black exoskeleton slab and thinking, what a cool building. Mm. So. We would have driven by the ferry building, but at that time, if you went into San Francisco, you were going on the Embarcadero Freeway. And the freeway, the ferry building clock tower was on the right of the freeway. The skyline was on the left of the freeway. And I always kind of look that direction. So my first memory of it is really starting with the Chronicle in the 90s and going into this dingy, 
going into this dingy, dilapidated warren of offices. It's where the Port of San Francisco was located. And really thinking how cool it was in a broken down, beaten up sort of way that <laughs> there was this relic on the water. I mean, at some point before it was rehabilitated, you said it was like a parking lot, right? I mean, there people were parking their cars inside of it. It's really amazing that the south half of the ferry building had been redone on the cheap in the 60s by the Port of San Francisco. And there were one or two law firms in that space over time. But what you had on the ground floor where um, Ouellette's Larder would now be, where the One Market restaurant used to be, that was a parking garage for port maintenance vehicles. I mean, it's hard to imagine because it's so beautiful today. But let's, I mean, we've talked about what it looks like today. And I mean, 125 years ago, it was a whole different kind of building. I mean, it has the name Ferry Building. That's mm-hmm. what it was for, right? For ferries. It was. It was built purely, it was built as a transportation depot. I mean, this is before the bridges existed. And so this was San Francisco's front door to the world. This is where upwards of 50 million people a year cross the bay coming, you know, most of them were commuters, but also anyone headed to San Francisco from Chicago or New York or Boston, they came by train. The last stop of the train was on the Oakland shoreline and you transferred as part of your ticket onto a ferry and went across. The west side of the building, the facade that faces the city, looked pretty much exactly as it does now, but the east side had seven enormous ferry slips sticking out of it, kind of like you have passenger gates at an airport. You know, it wasn't a question of the ferry pulling in and you getting off and then walking on shore the way it is now, you pulled off and you walked directly into the building. You walked through the second floor grand hall, the nave, and then you went down two grand staircases down onto Market Street. Wow. I mean, it's like our Grand Central Station, right? Like New York. Very much so, yes. You know, when it was built, I mean, there was an old, you know, ferry building there. And then this, this, the building that we know today was built, but it wasn't without controversy. It was hard to get that building built and people debated whether it was the right thing for San Francisco. Tell us, that feels like a very familiar conversation in modern times. It is extremely familiar. I'm a history major, so I love plunging into the past, but I'm also a lifelong journalist. And it's crazy to see how much the rhetoric of the arguments replay era after era after era. The, you know, this is a lot like the east span of the Bay Bridge. During the time the ferry building was being constructed, the especially competing newspapers, you know, getting into the political factions of the day, the ferry building was going to be too expensive. It was a boondoggle for the architect. It was structurally unsafe in the design. The whole thing would collapse in an earthquake or just gradually float out to sea because it was too heavy. (laughs) And another thing was that 
the cement being used for the foundation was not up to snuff. There was one crazy thing where the governor of California at the time came down from Sacramento on a train, crossed the bay on a ferry, then got onto a rowboat with some of his henchmen and went to where the foundation for the building was being built above the water, chipped into it with an axe and had a furrowed look on his face because our furrowed brow, because it just chipped right out, which, you know, if you kind of know engineering, a lot of concrete does take a while to dry. You know, it was, it was getting into a big political fight between different factions in Sacramento and the ferry building was seen as connected to one side of the factions because it was a state owned state operated building. It it just was the strangest thing. You read all this and it sounds like high speed rail. It sounds <laughs> like the East span of the Bay bridge. It sounds like a dozen other projects we've lived through. It, I mean, there's real history of the Yimby Nimbyism conversation, but going, <laughs> going back to how the building actually stays up in the water. I mean, this part I found fascinating in, in your book. I mean, the ferry building, as we know, it has these two wings and there's a clock tower in the middle. It's quite a large building and it's sitting on a table of sorts, which is sitting on, I think this is right, wooden piers. Do I have that right? Yes. It's. <laughs> How is the asked, wood not rotted? I know you get asked this all the time, but well, and, and the thing is, I get asked this all the time, and I've yet to have a pat answer because it's so complicated. But in a <laughs> nutshell, you had a bunch of um, pine trees cut down in Oregon, prepared to be piers or piles, rather, in Oregon, put onto boats, shipped down to San Francisco, then taken out to where the ferry building was being built above the water, connected to a seawall that is much troubled now, but at the time it had been built pretty much five years before or something. And the piles are then driven down into soft May mud. So, I'm sorry, soft bay mud. Yeah. They do not touch bedrock. They just go down into the mud. They're then cut to be all the same height, which was a problem just getting that whole routine down for the for the construction crews. And then boxes are on top of each one so that the, this is critical, the pine is never exposed to air or water. It's all under the mud but there's an open face box on top. That's where the concrete is poured. Then once it hardens, the box is taken off. And so you have all these kind of square tops to these piles. Then catacomb-like arches were built connecting all of these piles, some of which are clustered depending on where they are. And then once all these catacomb-like arches are built, Concrete was poured on top to create this enormous tabletop, you know, 650 feet long and several hundred feet wide. And that was the foundation that still exists today. 
I mean, it is extraordinary that this 19th century architecture on water Mm -hmm. has survived. And we talk about things like the Millennium Tower, you know, leaning over, and that was built like in this century, in the last century. Um, So the ferry building is really popular. People are coming through, but then obviously there's a demise, and it's the car that brings it down ultimately. The car and I guess the two bridges. What happens? Yes. Yeah, I mean, one thing I wanted to do with the book was not make it a monograph on a building, Mm -hmm. as interesting as the building is to me, but really use it to look at other facets of urban history in the 20th century. And a huge one was was that the car became the chosen method of getting from point A to point B in San Francisco, but in every city across America and in America as a whole. And so what you had was... Once the car starts becoming a mass commuter, com, a mass consumer product, which is really in the early 20s or so, you start having a clamor to build the bridges, which had been talked about off and on forever. But then it became a major, major political fight, not with anyone resisting it. Everyone embraced the idea. The only ones against it for the Bay Bridge was the United States Navy, which just flat out blocked the idea of a bridge on several occasions in the 20s because of the Alameda Naval Shipyard and the Hunter's Point Naval Shipyard. And the Navy's concern that putting a bridge across the middle would impede military transport in times of war and could be susceptible to sabotage, things like that. And... What turned it around was that Herbert Hoover became elected president in 1928. He was a Stanford graduate. He was an engineer. He was someone who loved the Bay Area. And once he became president, he and the governor of California put together a commission that recommended the same thing that had been recommended time and time again. And this time the military said, you're right, Mr. President, we can have a bridge there. So we have and, something to thank Herbert Hoover for. You know, he usually gets a bad rap in history. Yeah, but. there was the Great Depression, but <laughs> in, in this case. Yeah, but so then once the bridges were built, the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge, who needs a ferry building? You know, the mm-hmm. ferry the ferry business withered away very quickly, and the Bay Bridge initially had uh, key line streetcars on it. You know, the bottom level was essentially for commuter rail and for trucks and things. But, you know, by the 50s, that was the plug was pulled on that, too, because people would rather drive their cars. You know, I, I reading the book, too, you quoted um, as somebody who was doing a study on this and the 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 thesis was cities are dying anyway. We need to get better and quicker ways to get to the suburbs because suburbs are our future. And I'm sure as an urban design critic, you you had thoughts about that. I did. And in a weird way, it's heartening for the, the current times because there has pretty much always been a sense in America that cities were at the brink of failure. And after World War II, there was this real conviction, not just in San Francisco and the Bay Area, but throughout America, that cities were going to become obsolete. 
that suburbs were where people wanted to live. They were more convenient. It was the single family detached home, all these types of things. And that led to some very terrible urban renewal type plans. It, it fueled that. It fueled freeways. There were lots of really bad planning decisions made, very ruinous cases, you know, attacks on working people, attacks on ethnic groups and racial groups. I mean, I'm not minimizing any of that. But the weird thing was, was that the form of the city and the underpinnings of concentrated metropolises like San Francisco endured through all that. And I mean, I think it'll endure through the pandemic for all the trouble San Francisco is going through right now. Well, let me introduce the reintroduce the program. This is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW Bay Area. I'm your host, Grace Wan. We're talking with John King, the urban design critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. He has a new book, Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities. And we'd love to hear from you. What was your first impression of the Ferry Building and what memories do you have of the place? How do you like to spend a day at the Ferry Building or on the Embarcadero? You can give us a call by dialing 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or you can email us at stateofthebay at org. So John, you know, you were, we started this program off talking about your very first memories of the ferry building being from the outside because you were skimming along the Embarcadero Freeway, which for people who are new to town and might not remember it was this freeway that really ran above where the Embarcadero is now. It was controversial when it was built. Why? The reason it was controversial was people loved the idea of having nice freeways where they could just zip around. The state of California had a lot of money at the time, so it was putting money into programs. Once the actual design was done and the location was in place, really the eve of construction, which is why the, it did get built, a lot of people in San Francisco, including a lot of business people in downtown interest, started having second thoughts because they started to realize that the ferry building, even if it seemed obsolete, even if it seemed like a building whose time had passed, it was still such a symbolic building within San Francisco. It was where San Fran- where Market Street, the main boulevard in the city, met this very well-known symbol of the city at the water. Mm. And so they started lobbying Mayor Christopher at the time and state engineers saying, can't we at least move the freeway somewhere, this, that, or the other thing? And they said, no, we don't want to slow things down. And then it was, could we put it underground? And the answer was, no, it's too expensive and we don't want to slow things down. I mean, at the Embarcadero had been the biggest port on the West Coast when the ferry building was built. You know, we have finger piers today. There were a lot more finger piers. But by the 50s, it was clearly dying, too. It was being left behind by all the technology of international shipping trade. And so this was like an industrial area, but it was almost a blighted industrial area. I mean, we just can't conceive now how it looked to people at the time. However, putting the freeway there was this signal 
we're cutting ourselves off from the reason the city exists. And the other thing was all these other neighborhoods in San Francisco where freeways were being proposed, big elevated freeways were being proposed, started saying, wait a second, we don't want one of those. Look what they did to the Embarcadero and look what it did to the ferry building. If it happened there, it will happen here and we need to do what we can to stop it. Well, ironically, with all the conversation that, oh, this ferry building built the way it is, is going to fall apart in an earthquake. When 1989's Loma Prieta earthquake came, it wasn't the ferry building that got it in the end. It was the Embarcadero Freeway. So how did the earthquake help with urban design? It helped immensely because the freeway would still be there, I'm I'm confident in saying. And the reason I say that is in 1986, just three years before the Loma Prieta earthquake, Mayor Diane Feinstein got the permission of the Board of Supervisors to take down the Embarcadero Freeway and build a surface boulevard, very much like what we have now, including even like having streetcar service of some kind. But people were so against growth back then, and there would everybody hated the Embarcadero Freeway, but everybody used it. And when a ballot measure went in from an opponent of the proposal just saying, Voters of San Francisco, do you want to tear down the ferry building? I'm sorry, I say this every time. <laughs> San Francisco voters, do you want to tear down the Embarcadero Freeway? The answer was a resounding no. Wow. So the vote, it wasn't 51-49, it was 60-30 or what, 60-40 uh, or whatever. Wow. So that was the end of the issue. But then the earthquake came three years later the columns of the double-deck concrete viaduct were cracked. Cars were not allowed back on. Caltrans said, we can get this fixed. We can reopen in eight months or so. But that was the time needed for opponents to dust off all their arguments and include the safety argument. Remember, for those of you who were here in 89, the Embarcadero Freeway didn't collapse, but the Cypress Freeway right, right. in Oakland did collapse where Mandela Parkway is now. And there were more than 100 people killed. It was just mm. horrifying. It was far and away the worst human toll of the Loma Prieta earthquake. So mm -hmm. this was not just pure alarmist rhetoric. You could just point across the bay to what happened at a bridge of the same basic design as the Embarcadero Freeway. Well, I was here during that time, and I remember this controversy, and I didn't live in San Francisco, but when the earthquake happened, I was pretty happy <laughs> in, in, that, in the sense that that freeway was coming down. And you're right, John. I mean, the, the feeling of the time was, was those, that Cypress Freeway pancaked and trapped yes. people inside, and I think people were feeling like anything that had a little bit of harm or, you know, damage from the earthquake needs to come down because it's not safe. So it really shook people up. So now we have this beautiful boulevard and now we have this tourist attraction with these beautiful cars from all different cities across the world that travel on the F train. 
I mean, it's hard to imagine when it wasn't this way. But, you know, a lot of buildings in San Francisco get repurposed. I think every movie theater is either a crunch fitness or some (laughs) kind of gym. And, you know, as an urban design critic, does that make you feel good when things are repurposed in that way? Or do you feel that oh, maybe that kind of building has seen its it past and like we don't have to preserve a movie theater. We can just build something new. Where do you land on that? I do not believe that older buildings are inherently superior to new buildings and we should try to rehab and preserve every old building. But I do think that whenever we can repurpose or restore or reuse a building within today's life of the city, that's a great thing. I mean, sustainability-wise, but also cities, particularly San Francisco, are so much the present adapting but drawing on the past. So you look at a building like the Ferry Building, And it's an 1898 building built for a 19th century purpose, but it's a manifestation of 21st century San Francisco. Similarly, you know, those old movie theaters and, you know, the the film palaces, I mean, so many of them are gorgeous buildings. Some of them are kind of a cool marquee and not much else inside, but they're neat buildings, but just volumetrically, they're also very interesting. I would much prefer to see some of those movie theaters stay movie theaters. I mean, I mm-hmm. live in Berkeley and the pandemic was the final straw for about half a dozen movie theaters. But if you can save the building and turn it into something else, you're keeping it for the potential of what the future might bring to it. Well, you've written that what you don't build is just as important as what you do end up building. I mean, looking at the city and let's looking at the ferry building in particular, what horrible fates did the ferry building avoid? Yeah, that was that was the best part of doing the book was the research and talking <laughs> to people who love the building. But part of the research was just all the crazy things. I mean, in the late 1940s, the Board of State Harbor Commissioners, the predecessor to the Port of San Francisco, and state agencies and the city were pushing building a nine-block World Trade Center there that would essentially take where the ferry building is and just keep going into the bay block after block after block uh, with a cruise terminal at the end. And it would, you'd tear down the ferry building and put up a 40 story slab flanked by blocks of mid rise buildings. And it was this weird thing that was so, <laughs> so preposterous. It was completely embraced by people, but there was no conceivable market. This was before New York's World Trade Center. Mm. It was just this vague notion we've won World War II. We want to be the capital of the Pacific Rim. We'll have a World Trade Center, whatever that is. Um, so that just kind of died out. But then after the Embarcadero Freeway got built, then there were all these things of how do we bring people back to the waterfront? How do we bring people to the ferry building and make something of it? And weirdly, not once, but at least twice over the course of a few years, 
you had very well-respected architects and landscape architects and city planners pushing for the idea of a grand park, waterfront park at the end of Market Street, and it would be sent, it would be wrapped around the ferry building clock tower. Hmm. So you would cut the wings off and just tear them down. Hmm. The idea being you'd be on Market Street and you would glimpse the water beyond the freeway and that would pull you out. And then there'd be a big park around the ferry building and there'd be historic ships parked there. There'd be a helicopter pad, this very kind of oddball 50s vision, except that really good people were pushing for it for <laughs> years. And that helped spur a lot of the resistance to development later because they were pushing it so much, people started pushing back. It's just fascinating to hear what our city might have looked like. Um, and that one doesn't sound great, <laughs> to be honest. But Mark, you mentioned Market Street, and that's been such a sore spot design-wise for the city. I mean, the San Francisco Standard had an article recently questioning whether this idea of ter- of closing Market Street to cars was actually a bad idea because it's never been revived. And that mid-market area, and we're talking maybe 4th Street to down to Van Ness, always has has seemed to suffer since its heydays. I mean, as a design critic, what are your thoughts about that? Was it the right thing to close cars to Market Street? And is there any hope to revive that area? There's a there are really good arguments on both sides of this, um, which sounds like a kind of shifty answer. Except, as a rule, closing streets to traffic in the middle of cities doesn't work. You know, you had there was a big craze for that in the '60s and '70s, and then a big reversal of the craze. I think San Francisco's makes more sense because the idea is more close it so we can really have it be a transit thoroughfare. I mean, the the problem with the reason Market Street is so empty and forlorn on the lower blocks is the pandemic Mm -hmm. and just the hollowing out of the financial district. It's not that you no longer can drive a car down there because there weren't that many cars on it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm lucky enough to be able to take the bus in or BART in but if I had a car, I would be on Mission Street because, or Folsom or Howard because Market Street was just so confusing. Uh, you know, but the piece also talked about the better Market Street proposal and how that was kind of this grand hopes, but it was so badly defined, it just kind of went nowhere. And I think there's a fair amount of justice in that. It's funny, though, what it's trying to replace is this big, Market Street is Grand Boulevard that was done in connection with the building of BART. And that was done exactly according to plan. And it killed a lot of Market Street and Mm. it never worked well as a real attractive thoroughfare. I mean, you know, I've been at the Chronicle 30 years. I wrote a big piece about what are we going to do about mid Market Street back in 1993. 
You know, and yet it's so aesthetically pleasing. You know, you're standing at the ferry building and you look down Market Street and it's this big wide boulevard or you're on Ninth and you're looking down towards the ferry building. I mean, it has the potential to be so beautiful. Um, I wanted to read some of the comments that we're getting in. A listener writes, I may be in the minority here, but I miss the Embarcadero Freeway. I loved how easy it was to get across the city and the views from the freeway were amazing. I think young John King would agree with that, that the views were amazing. Oh, and, and the John King going to clubs in North Beach as a college <laughs> student never really thought about it except for the easy shot in and out. <laughs> we'll have to hear more about that, John King. I think that's a whole other show, John. Um, and another listener writes, I love spending Saturday morning at the ferry building, grabbing a coffee and pastry, watching people, enjoying the view. I'm so thankful for this glimpse into the ferry building's history and future. Thank you, John King. And this oh, listener and this listener writes, what are some ways the city is thinking of protecting the ferry building and the Embarcadero from sea level rise in the short term or long term? John, you have a lot in your book about that. What, you know, this is a building that's built on the water. Um, what is being done to protect it? So far, what's being done to protect it are a lot of studies. And a challenge for me, I, I have a chapter in the book on sea level rise. I mean, this is not just a history book. It goes in, you know, the, the last small section of the book is the unknown. And I really wanted to get it done and out this fall because the longer the book was not published, the more that part of the story would keep changing. What's been done since about 2016 are ever bigger and more specific studies on the possible impact of sea level rise and what are some of the short-term things we can do along the Embarcadero to work on that and at the same time strengthen the seawall. Now, there's the whole seismic issue of how durable is the seawall, which is a totally artificial construct that keeps the developed city or the developed financial district in south of market area from the water. But what you're starting to have now is the, we can talk about short-term plans. For instance, conceivably you put, I'm dumbing this down, you know, where you have railings as you walk south on the Embarcadero from the building, ferry building down to the Bay Bridge and then the ballpark, you know, you could, instead of railings, you could have fiberglass barriers or glass barriers there. You know, there are these things for just kind of dealing with the most extreme things for the next few decades. But looking beyond that, we're starting to talk about, do you raise the sea level? Do you, there is a study going on right now in terms purely of engineering. Could you raise the ferry building? Mm. Now, if engineers said, yes, you can conceivably raise the entire ferry building, that raises another question is how on earth would you deal with the tenants during that time and all this? So that's the challenge is San Francisco. And this will be starting, I think, next year with all the other horrible things going on in the world. Next year has to be a time when there's this real serious long-term discussion about the long-term approaches that need to be made along the Embarcadero, as well as the entire Bay Shoreline. Uh, but the Embarcadero is so concentrated, there's so much wealth there, and it is such 
a definitive part of today's San Francisco. You can't just, if you were to just build a seawall six or eight feet higher and pretend you're in Foster City, mm. there goes the Embarcadero Promenade. There goes the view of the water from the Embarcadero. Do you have a wall that's cutting all the piers off from the from the city? Mm -hmm. So then it, you really start to look at the whole how how or if we can redesign the Embarcadero in such a way as to lift it up some, build up some, but do it in a way that makes it as compelling an attraction as now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that means going into the city for instance theoretically you could taper the entire embarcadero up about we'll say three feet hmm. and just kind of slant it upwards and everything and handle it general grade but then you're talking about well we'd have to take out all the streetcars. we'd have to take out all the hmm. sub all the utilities underneath I mean, it's just enormous what the challenge is going to be. And the cost will be enormous, too. And, you know, the port has been, to their credit, working hard on trying to figure out ways to do it. But actually starting to talk about them in public is going to get really tricky. You know, and the the last time a bond was passed, I think it was 2018, we passed a 425 million bond with 83% in support of like kind yes. of looking at this. And, you know, that was pre-pandemic and not in a time when, you know, downtown occupancy was near 100% and different economic times for the city. So certainly it is challenging. I mean, John, there's a lot of conversation about Doom Loop and as an architectural critic, you get you get asked this all the time. But you know, with you've covered the sort of revival that is trying to happen in downtown. But, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes bad moments like this can really beget amazing innovations and thoughtfulness and good things can come out of bad things. What architecturally do you see or do you hope will come out of this moment for San Francisco in terms of its skyline and how it develops buildings? I have a piece online today that will be in the paper in a day or two looking at design changes for a pair of approved 40-story housing towers down near the Caltrain station at the edge of Mission Bay, a block from the ballpark and all. And part of what you're going to see is if new towers can get built, they're going to be cleaner and simpler than what was on the drawing board during the pre-pandemic boom. You know, just because it's like, how do we make this work? But I think that my hope would be that somehow this breaks us away from the norm that just veered so much to wealth and kind of international investment that it kind of eroded a lot of the local connections and things in terms of the commercial district and all. I mean, anyone who's in the Bay Area are in San Francisco and looks at it honestly and travels around knows that lots of the city's doing really well. Mm -hmm. uh, the ferry building's doing really well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the problem is, is that you have all this empty office space, all these empty storefronts in union square, all this trouble. And that 
generates the taxes that keep services going in the rest of the city. I mean, I, I'm a Pollyanna by nature and everything, but I think there'll be a few hard years. But with luck, all these efforts right now, you know, the pop-up storefronts, the let's illuminate, you know, downtown buildings for a few days, you know, for like a week during the holiday season. Let's encourage parklets to continue. Um, this is much more controversial, sadly. Let's look at slow streets in certain areas. All that could coalesce into a much more kind of egalitarian, varied city, which would be great, but it's not something that can easily happen. You know, like, uh, super quick, because I know we need to move on, but there's this vacant to vibrant program the city's testing out, you know, in the Northeast area. Well, this station has this a spot. Point. Yeah, we have a spot too. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You guys are on Montgomery Street. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Next yeah. time I want to do a live show. Really. It's happening, John. It is happening. Work. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, you know, like there's this one space in Embarcadero Center that's got Devil's Teeth Bakery from the Outer Sunset and Green Apple Books from the Richmond District. And it's great. It's like this little shot of the, you know, outside lands kind of ending up at Sacramento and Front Street or whatever. Right. And it seems to do real good business and everything like that. And that's 500 square feet. And you look at the empty space in the shopping center where Nordstrom is or all those empty anchor, quote unquote, anchor retail spaces in the Union Square area. You're not going to plug those with fun pop-ups. Right. It's going to take a few years. I mean... I, pickleball may be the answer, John. I understand that some people want the go. Westfield Center to be an entire pickleball pandemonium over there. Um, and it's inside, so neighbors couldn't complain <laughs> about the noise. Absolutely. And as you point out, there's like the Stonestown Mall. I think I, there was a piece recently in the Chronicle. That place is going like gangbusters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what I love about this town is that we're constantly being boosters for it. And I don't think there's a better booster than you, John King, in terms of giving us the history and also telling us what the future can look like. But I can't let you go before I ask you one question, which is I read your list of top 15 iconic San Francisco buildings. Transamerica Pyramid, where do you land? Oh, it's totally an icon. I mean, it's, I, I think I, and, and I give it a page or two in the book because it, it was so fought over so severely. I just think it works totally as an icon because it's distinctive. It is like nothing you see in other cities. You can't say, now, is this the pyramid in Portland, Oregon, or the one in Houston, or the one in San Francisco? And the beauty, the other thing about it that I think really makes it work as an icon, not just on postcards, but in real life, is how it is where Columbus hits Montgomery. Mm -hmm. So you have this diagonal slashing through the northern part of that part of town and then it hits Montgomery street and a diagonal shoots up into the heavens. I mean, there's yeah. just this wonderful it's a good symmetry one. that I don't think the architect planned because if you go back to articles at the time, you never read the architect or developers saying, Oh, it's going to be so cool urbanistically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it works great. 
Well, you know, we just scratched the surface of your fascinating book, and we always love having you on here on State of the Bay. This has been John King. He's the urban design critic for The Chronicle and author of a new book, Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities. Definitely pick it up at a Green Apple Books or an independent bookstore near you. Thanks for coming on, John. My pleasure. Definitely go to go the bookstore route. Yes. And coming up after the break, we'll learn what it's like to serve on Marin County's search and rescue team. Stay tuned. Tune in to KALW tonight at 7. It's the broadcast of a special live event at our community space in downtown San Francisco. Bay Area Poets, then, now, and forever. And she just said, I just want to let you know. And the only reason why I stayed was to hear what you were going to say next. (laughs) It's the broadcast of KALW's exclusive event, Bay Area Poets, then, now, and forever. That's tonight at 7 here on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. Tune into Cross Currents tomorrow morning at 11. When you're in prison, you're separated from your loved ones, including your furry friends. To be in a prison for a long time and not have contact with an animal and then have that opportunity to actually pet an animal, it means something. A very special training program on the newest episode of Uncuffed. That's tomorrow morning at 11 on Cross Currents from KALW News. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. Marin County is known for having an exceptional search and rescue team. It's a highly trained group of volunteers who can mobilize on a moment's notice to find a lost or missing person. They're often called upon by other counties in California to assist on searches, and their mountain rescue team has a superpower that no other team in this country has. Here to tell us about that are our two guests, Michael St. John, a unit leader for Marin County's search and rescue team, and Zadie Foskett a youth member of the team. Welcome to you both to State of the Bay. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Michael, let's start with you. Uh, Describe for us what Marin Search and Rescue does and tell us why your mountain rescue team is so unique. Marin Search and Rescue actually didn't exist until 1989 when we converted what was a Boy Scout Explorer post um, that did Search and Rescue into the Search and Rescue team. And what we did in doing that was assigned officers, put together everything from logistics to training. And the youth part of our program was always at the core. And that was really important to us to keep that aspect of it. Fast forward many years later, um, we have 100 members today. And we have approximately 35 to 40 of those are high school age members from the various schools around Marine County and a little bit beyond. And uh, when we became a mountain rescue team in 2004, uh, we had youth members also participate in that program. And our youth members are very experienced. One of the things that I think we do really well is we have a very good training program. Um, new recruits, whether you're a youth or adult, go through 80 hours of training just before they can even get started on the program. And the youth members hear better, they see better, and they don't have bias we did a research study two years ago and looked to determine who finds the most people as far as finds that our teams participated in. And that's canine teams, helicopters, adult members, and youth members. And youth members by far made the most finds. Wow. And these are all volunteers. Is that right, Michael? 
Yeah, so our program is 100% volunteer under the Marin County Sheriff's Office. Amazing. Zadie, you're a youth member. Why do you think it is that younger members of the search and rescue team are better at finding people? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think maybe attention to detail. It might be easier for us to see something or hear something or just focus on the intense details. Um, that might be a reason. Michael, is that your take on it? Yeah, as far as our youth members go, when it's like, hey, we need to go hike to the top of that thousand foot ridge and go off the other side. They're not staring at each other thinking, my gosh, uh, we're too old to do that. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> you know, uh, um, so things come a lot easier to them. And whether you're an adult or a youth, we have a pretty arduous fitness test just to join the team. And then um, even a, a bigger one, if you want to do type one missions, which Zadie here has passed, they don't have bias. So in my mind, just based on my life experience, I make assumptions that um, I've learned in hindsight weren't correct. They don't have that bias developed yet. So better joints, better cardio, possibly. That's one reason why. <laughs> and, and perhaps even more curiosity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned a type one mission. What's that, Michael? So in California, we rate teams, type one being the highest capability, which is to operate in alpine environments under arduous conditions above 7,000 feet. And that can be summer and winter skills. And for our tests, we have eight navigation points on Mount Tam. You get to choose how you want to do it generally. You know, we have people that you could do the course clockwise or counterclockwise, but it's not a route and it's done by yourself solo. Mm. So you can't fake the navigation. You can't follow somebody else. You have to do it all yourself. And typically this test uh, requires someone to hike 13 to 14 miles and uh, ascend uh, 3,500 feet of full elevation gain. It takes between six to eight hours. Wow. That does seem like a type one thing. Um, well, Michael, tell us what a typical search is like. I mean, you are searching for people who are lost in all kinds of environments. So what does that look like? So the interesting thing is that there is no typical search. Every search is different based on its conditions. Common searches for us can be elderly dementias. Um, we had an incident that we participated in extensively in Sierra County back in June where a woman and with still a fair amount of snow on the ground, although it was June and warmer, survived for four days until she was located. And we've had certainly other cases where we've looked for um, missing people that are despondent. And those are difficult searches. Um, and then we also do trail rescues, supporting Marin County Fire Department and other agencies around the county for extended trail rescues. And those types of calls, people need to like get out the door right away, show up not hopefully not too far behind the fire truck, and uh, hike up the trail and find out where the incident is. And we communicate that information and jump in and, and help to get somebody out. And we also do evidence searches. And then we do much more complex missions. We had an incident in July where our team went down to Los Angeles County and operated for two days in the Angeles Crest on a very complex mission where members were airlifted in each day and airlifted out at night and required the use of ropes to descend steep drainages. Sadie, what got you interested in this work? Yeah, so I learned about search and rescue through my older sister. She's on the team still today. And I would hear her alarm go off for searches in the middle of the night. And it just, it seemed so amazing. She had so much fun doing it. And I knew that I wanted to do exactly what she did. And I, I had to sign up. I had to do it. What's a memorable mission been for you? So... 
Probably my most memorable mission. We were on the border between California and Oregon. Um, probably one of the most intense searches I've ever been on. Um, we were there for two to three days. And what was intense about it was how thick the brush was. So we were walking through these incredible manzanita bushes that were 10 to 15 feet high. And, you know, it would take us an hour to move maybe a hundred feet. And we had to do that all day. And then we went to bed, woke up and did it all again. Did it have a happy ending? Unfortunately, no, that one did not have a happy ending. How do you handle that when you spend time searching for a person and the end result is unfortunate? The person is no longer with us. Their loved ones are obviously upset about that. How do you handle that, Zadie? Yeah, so it can definitely get hard um, dealing with those emotions. I don't think many other high schoolers do body recoveries, so it's definitely hard and it was definitely a shock when I first joined the team because I've never experienced anything like that before. But we do have an amazing peer support group. So it's these highly trained people on our team who focus on um, helping people cope with those big feelings. And so we usually get a text or call after a tough search like that. And we get the opportunity to talk through those feelings and talk with people who went through that same experience. Michael, I'm sure people listening to this show might be curious on how they can be involved and what they can do if they'd like to be part of Search and Rescue. So how does one volunteer, Michael? So in California, um, with some notable exceptions, every county has a Search and Rescue team. And so uh, except for San Francisco, all the nine area counties have teams. And then if you are in San Francisco, people in the north part of the city can look at us. Uh, they can look at Alameda. San Mateo County, Barrie Mountain Rescue. So I would suggest people stay local. Um, on the major missions that occur in California, we're all there anyway. Um, you know, working side by side and each team has different recruitment policies. If you look at ours, we recruit only once a year in the spring because everybody undergoes a big, huge indoctrination and training process. Um, but, um, every team has a very different process of how they take on members. And uh, and we encourage you to to start local to look at your local search and rescue team. Well, Zadie, I have a question for you. Since you do specialize in search and rescue, what's your advice for people who are going out on the trails, maybe hiking Tennessee Valley or going up to Mount Tam? I mean, what can we do to make sure that you're not searching or rescuing us? Yeah, so it's super important to be prepared before you go out. You know, you got to know where you're going. <laughs> I would definitely suggest having some maps on you. I, Caltopo, Avenza, whatever app that you feel best working with. Um, it's also super important to have the necessary gear on you. So food, water, a light, an extra battery pack, those like core essentials that could really get you out of a bad situation if you needed to use them. A first aid kit if something really goes wrong. Those kind of basic core essentials are super important. Anything you'd add to that, Michael? No, I think she covered it well. This time of year, we get people that don't expect it to get dark so early and are caught out unprepared. And just keeping an extra layer might be the only thing I might add to that. Make sure your cell phone is charged. <laughs> I would yeah. think that probably helps too. Well, I feel a little safer having talked to you both and more confident going out there on the trails. And Michael St. John and Zadie Foskett, I want to thank you so much for the great work that you're doing and for joining us here on State of the Bay. Thanks for thank having us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. That was Michael St. John and Zadie Foskett of the Marin County Sheriff's Search and Rescue Team. 
Well, that's State of the Bay this week. We hope you'll join us next Monday for a discussion of the decisions made at the United Nations Climate Change Conference and what they might mean for the Bay Area. We want to thank all of our guests and listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. And for more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit the State of the Bay page on KALW.org. And you can always email us, stateofthebay at KALW.org. Tonight's show was produced by Kendra Klang and Ann Harper. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. I'm Grace Wan. Good night, and thanks for listening.